0: TED Audio Collective. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com.
1: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. at canva.com, designed for work. I got a
2: call. I remember distinctly being in a meeting, and I got paged over the intercom. There's an intercom at Crew, And all I heard was, we just got a call from the New York Post. They're running a story that you are seeing a woman. Uh, should we confirm or deny?
0: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Debbie talks with fashion designer Jenna Lyons about her time at J. Crew.
2: I know the truth. I know what's really going on. I got credit for things I didn't deserve credit for. I got... Slammed for things I probably didn't deserve to get slammed for.
1: Jenna Lyons started with J. Crew when she was 21 years old, and worked her way up to the ranks to become not only executive creative director, but also president of the company. Her style became J. Crew style, and her brand was synonymous with J. Crews. She was even appointed the woman who dresses America by the New York Times. So when Crew and Jenna Lyons parted company in 2017, they each had to figure out who they were on their own. Since the parting, Jenna Lyons has started a new eyelash company, and she is currently producing and starring in a new reality show on HBO Max. She joins me today to talk about her past, her present, and her future. Jenna Lyons, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so
2: excited to be here.
1: Thank you, Jenna. Well, the first question I have for you is about your dog. Why did you name him Popeye? <laughs> That's a great question.
2: Uh, when I got Popeye, my son and I picked him out from a rescue place, and he was only two pounds. And so we wanted to give him a name that he could sort of
1: grow into and wanted him to be strong. So that was why we named him Popeye. <laughs> and I understand that you're considering getting him his own agent. <laughs> it was a, It was a joke,
2: <laughs> but but considering how much attention he gets, he may need one. He's very, very
1: popular. yeah, he has a lot of charisma on the show, I have to say he, he, it's so true and
2: and ironically, you know he's he's definitely my dog, but when people come over, as soon as someone comes over and they sit on the couch, he looks at me and goes over and sits right next to them, like, just so you know, mom. I can be friends with other people too. And he co- it's like, he's a total slut. I mean, I don't know what happened, <laughs> but he's totally give me, giving me a run for my money.
1: Oh, I have to tell you, we, we got a new dog a few months ago and he was also two pounds when we got him. He's really a love muffin, but only with us. He takes a while to get to, used to other people. Your dog goes and sits next to people. My dog barks at people. Um, and he's now only seven pounds, but you'd think he was a pit bull the way he just is barky when he well, sees people he doesn't like.
2: The one thing I will say is your dog is a, must be a puppy then. Yes. Okay. So Popeye did the same thing up until he was like 14 months. So I think that goes away.
1: Ah. Oh, good. Because yes. I want him to be a little bit more friendly. I Although know, we do I feel know. much safer now.
2: <laughs> Seven <laughs> <Yeah>. pound dog. <laughs> I was going to say. I don't, I don't know if safe is really the feeling I get. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So Jenna, you were born Judith Lyons in Boston, Mm -hmm. Massachusetts, but your family moved to Palos Verde when you were four. When did you go from Judith to Jenna? You did your homework. Um,
2: Well, I remember I went to Parsons. So uh, my first year in Parsons, it was actually in California. So it was Otis Parsons in Los Angeles the first year. And I remember I never really felt like a Judith and, well, the teacher said, if anyone goes by a nickname or wants to change their name, now's the time to tell me at roll call and I'll put you in properly. And so the girl in front of me, they get to her and her name was Christina and she's like, oh, I go by Sebastian. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> I'll like, oh, bets her off. I can do anything. And I literally, on that spot, thought about you know, what am I going to say? I had no idea. I didn't know what to say, but my brother had teased me for quite some years and he used to say Jenna, Jenna, genitalia, Jenna, Jenna, genitalia as a joke. <gasps> I know. Isn't that a nice, <laughs> I mean, so awesome. <laughs> I mean, that is really, the derivation of my name is really sexy. Um, so I literally, it was the only thing that came to my mind. So I just said Jenna, like <laughs> I just came out and I wanted something, at least I had the same initials so I could sign my, na- i
1: I know, yeah. crazy. What did,
2: did, what did your brother think of this that you, you mean, took
1: on his nickname, his I moniker? Of- do
2: you know that I didn't tell a soul? I kept that a secret for, I don't know, probably 30, I mean, 20 years. I never told him until probably about five years ago because it was embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I don't know. I didn't really want anybody to know. So I've been keeping it a secret, but now I'm sharing it with you.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, Moving on to a a slightly more somber note, Uh, your mother was a piano teacher and your parents got divorced when you were in junior high school. And you've talked about a defining moment at that time in the tuna fish aisle in a supermarket.
2: Oh, gosh, you really went there. Yeah, I mean... I did. Uh, I mean, and it's interesting because my mom doesn't remember this, but you know how we all have those things in our head that like completely strike us and someone else is there and they don't have the same recollection or it it didn't impact them at all. But I just remember being in the tuna fish aisle and my mom, me saying, oh, let's get some tuna fish this week. And my mom saying, it's a little expensive. Let's not get it this week. And... You know, I, I lived in a neighborhood, Palsfordies is known for being a rather fancy neighborhood, but I lived in the not fancy part of the neighborhood. And, you know, and with my father leaving and my mom doing the best she could on, you know, a piano teacher's salary, things weren't always that easy. And it was a very humiliating and humbling experience. And I think as a kid, I didn't know how to process that. So I just, it was scary. You know, it was just, it was a scary experience. I had never had before. It was very, it really like rocked me in a way. I don't know how to express it.
1: I know that that moment inspired you to feel that you could only rely on yourself. How did this manifest in your work ethic as you were growing up? I mean, I think
2: it was that coupled with, you know, a few other poignant moments where my mother had said to me, you know, make your own money, don't rely on anyone else. I had made a really bad decision at one point where I had gotten money from a car accident and I bought my then boyfriend a synthesizer and my mother, like, lost her mind. and was like, don't spend your money on other people, take care of yourself, you never know. Like, don't rely on other people and don't overspend. And it just, there were moments like that across my life that kind of resonate with me and i think it just i know this is going to sound <laughs> weird but it was a, it was kind of just fear it it made me afraid that i would not be taken care of and so i needed to do that myself and i also think i had a fear of like just not doing a good job it was it wasn't just because oh i want to do well to make money that was part of it of course to take care but i also really had a lot of pride and didn't want to... I didn't want to do a bad job. You know, I didn't want someone to look at something I did and said, ooh, that's not good enough. Like, that was just something I didn't feel comfortable with.
1: Has it gotten any easier? Oh, God. I mean, therapy helps, but...
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm still waiting for it to get easier.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm waiting to feel safe. I think, I don't
2: you know, know, when it's going to happen. I don't know. I don't know if you ever fully like sink into that, but it certainly is helpful to be a little bit more aware of it, um particularly when you're raising a kid.
1: Yes. You were born with a genetic disorder called and I, I I'm hoping I pronounce this correctly, incontinentia pigmenta pigmented. Yeah. You're very good. It impacted the growth of your teeth and your hair. And you've said that as you were growing up, you were ashamed of your condition. You also experienced tremendous bullying with your classmates. And I read that boys chased you and hit you in the schoolyard. Yeah. Did anyone try and help you? Listen, it was, a t- it was a different
2: time. I think, you know, first, just to be clear, um, it affects the skin and the teeth and the hair. And for people who don't know, it's so my teeth grew in conicular, so that means like cones, so they, I literally looked like Dracula, and I had huge bald spots in the back of my head that I didn't actually realize were there until I was probably in fifth grade. And then my skin is um, kind of multicolored. It goes, it's darker patches and white patches, so I've got some
1: sort of like vitiligo a little bit. Yeah, I and, have vitiligo, um, so, yeah. Uh, okay. I, I know so what there, that is, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, this was years ago, this was long before people really talked about bullying, a lot of people talked about, don't listen to them you're beautiful, you know and it's interesting I've been doing a lot of reading there's a, a this guy Brad Reedy who I've been reading some of his, I listen to some of his podcasts and talking just about things you shouldn't say to your kids and one of them is like you know oh you're you're don't listen to those people you're beautiful all those things because basically what it does is it shuts down this idea that there's something that you have pain it's basically just completely not acknowledging what you're going through and no one knew my mother didn't have access to that kind of therapy or perspective and people didn't talk about bullying i was afraid to go to my teachers and my mother didn't know what to do i didn't want her to go to the school and then the kid that hit me get in trouble and then he'd hate me even more you know yeah, it, just, it made it worse I know that that happened to me too it's just there's not worth no it. no way out of it so I just kind of
1: dealt you know probably not <laughs> in the best of ways by the time you were in the seventh grade you were six feet tall yes and fashion was a challenge for you and you mostly had to shop in the big and tall section of stores and All that changed when you took a home economics class and you became fascinated by the world of sewing and making clothes. And I read about a yellow rayon skirt printed with jumbo watermelons that you made. (laughs) And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
2: I mean, gosh, you really, um, I'm so impressed. Um, Yeah, I... I was incredibly tall and incredibly thin, uh, and I know that sounds <laughs> like a blessing, but at the time, you know, this was before there were skinny jeans for girls, and you could, there was no tall section for girls. Like, I couldn't wear pants, I, and I had all these scars on my legs, so I was trying to hide them, so I was really, I needed pants, and I found myself just really unsure in buying really big clothes so that they would hang longer and fit. I, I thought I was a size 14. It turns out I was not. And so when I made that home economics class, the thing I wanted to make was a skirt that would actually go to the ground because nothing would do that on me. And I so I was, you know, through the process of making something my own, I had to measure myself and then make the skirt to my measurements. And I put it on and I was like, oh... I'm not big, I'm actually kind of thin. And this looks kind of good. And And then I wore it to school and the most popular girl in school, this girl, Dara Peterson, sent me a note in social studies and was like, hey, I love your skirt, where'd you get it? And I was like, I mean, I'll never forget the moment. And I said, well, I made it. And she was like, would you make me one? And I thought like, that was the first oh. moment in my life where I had gotten positive feedback for the way I looked. On top of that, I made it myself. And it was just kind of a, a little bit of like the best Pandora's box you could possibly open at that time in my life. It was, I was really struggling. None of the boys wanted to go out with me in quotes, <laughs> you know, because I was a head taller than all of them. I also, you know, my teeth were still really not great. And I think I'm sure people looking at me like, I don't want to kiss her. <laughs> like, and so, you know, it was just an incredible um, experience. And
1: I really, like, I ran with that one. I won the home economics award in high school <gasps> for, and the only reason I won, it was because we did cooking and sewing in home ec. And I didn't, I didn't, and still can't cook, but my mother was a seamstress and my mom oh, wow. made clothes. She put an ad in the penny saver and she made clothes for women that were tall and thin or thick people that couldn't buy clothes anywhere else and she would make their clothes. Amazing. And so she would make all these beautiful drawings after she made them and she hung them up in this little studio that was in her base in our basement. And oh so my God. we didn't have any money, but she taught me how to sew and I would make all my own clothes which I thought were like the coolest. But thinking back on it, they weren't <laughs> it wasn't like a beautiful like you the the description that I read about the skirt that it was um, a uh, long liquid and cut on the bias with an elastic waistband and a hand stitched hem. The skirt yes. t- turned out to be an epochal piece of rayon. And and mine were like pink polyester, puffy <laughs> sleeves with an appliqued purple butterfly. Hey, listen. And I had a pair of red great. corduroy overalls.
2: <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, listen, I'm th- I'm all in that sounds amazing. I like literally I think there was a one year where I dressed in nothing but shades of purple. So <laughs>
1: Have at it. I'm all for it. I, I still have mad sewing skills, but nothing like you. <laughs>
2: oh, no. I went to college for four years and I, like one of the things we did was sew. Like, I took, it's yeah. basically like going to trade school, but
1: I don't know if I could sew that well anymore. I mean, it's been a long time. Now, you said you use clothing as an armor and that your personal style changes based on how you want to feel, even if you're faking it. And I know a lot of women do that. They feel so much like I put on makeup today so that I would feel more confident, you know, talking to you face to face through Zoom. Um, What makes you feel strongest? I mean, it really depends on the moment and what
2: the occasion is. You know, I think I can give you an example of, you know, I am on the board of Shake Shack and they had a retreat and they asked if I would talk at the retreat. And I realized that they all expected me to be businesslike and very professional, and so I chose to wear a sequin jacket that was incredibly sparkly in like eighty million different colors of sequins. It's one of my favorite pieces, and mostly just because I wanted I wanted people to see me feeling fun and be and relate, and and I, I didn't want to be what they expected. I wanted them to see like a fun part of me and a sparkly part of me, and that was important, you know. And I've it really just depends on the moment. I. It doesn't always work either. Like sometimes I try really hard, <laughs> and I don't feel great. <laughs> it's it's a it's a process and a, and an armor as such. But I think anyone who knows, you know, at the end of the day, confidence is an inside job. So it can help, like it can give you strength, but it doesn't always give you
1: everything. <laughs> Your grandmother gave you a sewing machine and a subscription to Vogue, and I read that the first copy you received was the 1982 issue with Isabella Rossellini on the cover and an Issey Miyake spread inside, and you read the issues cover to cover, went back and read them again, and even memorized the mastheads. Did you ever consider a career in publishing at that time, working at a magazine? I did not know anything about the fashion industry. I
2: didn't... Think that I would ever meet an Anna Wintour, or Liz, like they—it just was. I could not express to you how far away it felt from my life. You know, I—I I lived in an area like Palisades when I was growing up. Like there were no bookstores, there were no magazine stores. The only thing that was on the magazine aisle in my grocery store was Red Book and the National Enquirer. You know, and that's just what was available to me. So it just felt completely not approachable. I didn't even dream that. I mean, I also didn't really understand what those people did. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't know what a magazine editor did. I didn't, I did know that I enjoyed making things with my hands. And I liked the process of like thinking about something, making it and then wearing it and having feedback like that loop was for me was really healthy. And so I felt more drawn to that, but I had, I didn't really, I still don't totally know
1: (laughs) what goes on in all the magazines. I understand that a drawing class and learning about Antonio Lopez is what inspired your decision to apply to Parsons School of Design for Fashion.
2: Yes, Mrs. Webster. My mother was really incredible. She got me private sewing, machine list, sewing lessons so that I could really learn to make things outside of my home at class. And I was enrolled in private drawing lessons with this woman named Mrs. Webster. And Mrs. Webster gave me a book called Antonio's Girls by Antonio Lopez, and it Literally, it was probably one of the most kind of eye-opening things for me. You know, I grew up in California where beauty was Baywatch. It was blonde hair, blue eyes, big boobs, surfer. That was the only aesthetic that really existed. And I opened up the pages of Antonio's Girls, and there is... Jerry Hall, who, granted, she was blonde, but had really didn't have any boobs to speak of. Grace Jones, you know, beautiful, dark-skinned, strong black woman. Tina Chow, Asian woman with bright red lips and kind of boyish way of dressing, and just completely different. Marissa Berenson with big locks of curly hair. Oh, no Marissa. Nobody wanted curly hair back. You know, it was just, I realized that there was another type of beauty out there, and The way that he photographed them was not like what I was seeing in the magazines. It wasn't polished and perfect. They were beautiful, but they were free and sexy. And I was just completely taken in. And it really just, it got me, I was like, I want to go to New York. I want to be wherever this person is, wherever this idea of beauty is, I want to go.
1: So you moved to New York City in the late 1980s. What a great time to be in Manhattan, Oh, what was that I mean, like for you, going, going from Southern California to New York City in the 90s? I mean, I just got the chills. I mean, first, it
2: was a different place. I mean, this was well before all of the zoning laws had kicked in. So you had, you know, just clubs, all kinds of clubs everywhere underground clubs, dancing clubs. Sex clubs. It was just like the wild, wild west, but it was amazing and it had that grit that still really exists. The meatpacking district was the meatpacking district and there were clubs. Remember but, Western Beef? Oh, God, are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, even would to a
1: place across that you'd go know, to at like
2: four in the morning. Yeah, I mean, I remember going, walking from Nell's on 14th Street over to Florent and literally like with all the dudes at four in the morning, like with the meat hanging on the racks. It was just, <laughs> it was like a totally different vibe. You know, and but on top of that, like, it was the first time I'd ever really felt pretty in the way that, where I could be myself, you know, where I didn't feel like I was, you know, I had moved here very tan with bleach blonde hair and dressed kind of sexy, like California sexy. And I, when I moved here, nobody dressed like that. It was much more sophisticated women with, like, slicked back hair. And I'd never seen a red lip like that before and, you know, Sexy was not was not showing everything, sexy was understated. It was very different and I was like beyond excited. It was just one of
1: the best, I mean, those early years while I was dirt poor, I have the best memories. You interned at Donna Karen during your senior year and you said that the clothes were all incredibly beautiful but insanely expensive and you didn't know anyone who could afford them and it was at that point that you went from wanting to make beautiful clothes to wanting to make things that anyone could afford and anyone could wear. At that point, did you think that you could do both? I think I wanted to believe
2: that. I mean, I, I was aware of other brands that I, my friends could buy and that were, you know, my friends could buy Ralph Lauren, my friends could buy J. Crew, my friends could buy, you know, Ann Taylor was very, very different back then. Um, yes. You know, there was- They had some great you know, pencil skirts back then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I wanted to believe that. I knew that- where I got my satisfaction and where I got my like fuel, my emotional fuel was through the process of making things for other people. It wasn't just like, I want to make a beautiful thing and like very rare three people can afford this $2,500 cashmere jacket that while it is absolutely stunning and I want to live in it and I want to own it. There are not that many people that can
1: have that. And it didn't like work for me, like emotionally work for me. You saw a posting on the Parsons job board for a job at J. Crew. And at the time, J. Crew was selling a mix of khakis and rugby shirts and inexpensive cardigans. And what made you decide to apply there? So
2: this was exactly at the same time that they were starting to shoot on Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelista. They were really making an effort to make really simple, straightforward clothing more elevated. And that was, that was Emily Woods. That was her brainchild. And she really was trying to shift the thinking around like, why shouldn't an everyday t-shirt be gorgeous and sexy? And it, because it is. And I think, you know, she was looking at the work of, you know, like the Herberts and Avedons and Bruce Weber's, who were able to make something really simple, very, very sexy, not just sexy, but also just chic. And so, that was what was really inspiring to me was to see these models that I knew were walking the runways of Valentino and Prada and, and all of these, you know, Gucci, and the, the sort of high-end models, but then where they were coming in and being paid to wear like a beautiful, simple t-shirt and a sweatshirt and a pair of leggings. And it looked chic. And that was really inspiring to me and made me want that because it, it did both in my mind.
1: There wasn't actually a job when you interviewed, despite the job board ad, but the head of recruiting asked if she could have Xerox copies of your portfolio. Well,
2: there wasn't a job in women's. They had a job oh, in men's. Okay. And so, but I had never done men's, but I figured I would just go and say hi. And and I also was like, well, maybe I could try. And uh, so yes, Marcy Chelson, who was the head of HR at the time, I still remember her. She's like, you don't have any men's in your portfolio. And I was like, I know, I just wanted to- Figured I'd come, and you never know. And if there's something in the future, um, so yeah, she took Xerox as my portfolio. She sent them to Emily Woods, who was living in California at the time, and then I she called me right back, and and yeah, I for a very quick interview process, I flew out to LA, met Emily, did a project. I mean, I'm shortening this, but yeah, I got the job. Yeah, she she asked you to create eight sketches for oh, yeah. Emily
1: Woods. <laughs> You know, all of this is such a great part. You know, you just, you're asked to make something from nothing for a company you've never worked for and then you do.
2: I made a, a little, a booklet of men's clothes that I had never really sketched men. So I had to, you know, I had to learn how to sketch a male figure too, which was, I know that sounds crazy, but it's a little, it's a different thing. You know, I've been sketching women and the way that you sketch women, particularly at Parsons, there was like a rhythm to it. My I hand-eye coordination. I kept making the men like really (laughs) tall and skinny, and they looked so not manly. It was very funny. So it took me a while. And um, so, yeah, I made eight men's ideas for sketches. They sent them to Emily, and then they hired me, and I worked in men's for about Two weeks, and then they just like we're just going to move you over to women's because this is silly, and
1: uh, yeah, and I sort of never left. You started as an assistant to an assistant to someone else's assistant, <laughs> basically.
2: <laughs> I, I, just for the record, I had uh, I sat where there was no desk. It was like a weird sort of hallway area, and there was no like real desk. It was like a. T- it was pretty funny. This was the early, early days.
1: What was it like to first start seeing people wear something you designed? It's interesting. If the
2: first time it happened, it felt the same, like the 700th time it happened. It's so, I don't know, it's so exciting. It doesn't matter if it's a rugby shirt or a pair of khakis. Like there's some weird sense of pride that someone parted with their hard-earned money and they liked something that you touched enough to purchase it and then put it on their body. And that's just kind of amazing. It's an incredible reflection. It's really powerful. Um, I know it sounds silly, but it's... It really like it worked for me. Were you making your own clothes at the time? Oh God, I mean, no. I was. It was. I was working a lot. It was very. You know, we. It was the company was still very young and. It had a very kind of mom-and-pop attitude, and I I was really excited into it, I worked till 10 o'clock at night. You also have to remember, we this was before computers, so we were sending faxes, like writing, handwriting, long-form faxes every night about communicating with the factories about what we wanted to tweak or change on a garment, and the process of making clothes at that point was actually really laden with kind of busy work and memos. It was really hard, so all of the yeah. sketching and all stuff was done you know, in the evening hours and like writing memos about what kind of button I was looking, you know, I was just on phone calls with button vendors. It was a very different world.
1: By 2011, you've said that you and your colleagues were lost soldiers working away, following orders, and you were shell-shocked and burned out from what was going on. What were you imagining your future would be at that point at J.Crew at that time? The dates might be a little bit off, but it was really right before Mickey Drexler came in, and it's really hard to put into words other than the. But when before
2: Mickey joined, I had literally been through three complete line redos. I it was exhausting. You know, I had we had someone, a woman named Jean Jackson, who had been brought in by our parent company who owned us, who wanted her to help and consult. So I was sort of following her direction. Then we had a CEO who had not come from apparel who really didn't understand fabric. And it was a lovely man, but just did not have the background for it. And then he was gone. Then this other man, Ken Pilot, came in. He stayed for six months. But in that six months, we did a total redirect. And it was just, I mean, the, the trickiest part was, I don't know if I believed in what I was doing, but you get into this weird situation where, in order to keep my team, I needed to hold it together and I needed to try and motivate them. So I had to drink the Kool-Aid and really try to push through. And, you know, particularly when they're coming to me and saying, I want to leave, I don't want to be here. And I'm like, please stick it out. And they're like, well, are you going to stay? And I... It's like, oh, God, you know, I wanted to go too. Um, but I didn't want to lie to them. So then you get in this weird conundrum where you're promising people you'll stay, but you really don't want to. So now you have to get up every morning and, like, go and do a job that you don't feel passionate about, that you're confused and really... It was just a really, really dark time. And, you know, and then Mickey joined and I thought, like, I don't know if I can do this again. Like, I just was really... I also... What is missing in that in that little intersection is that it was the first time I was the boss. So when Gene Jackson came in, they had fired my boss, who was my dear friend and mentor, and I didn't have those managerial skills. I wasn't confident in that way. I, you know, I have a really distinct memory of someone saying to me, "I, I just inherited this entire team. They were now reporting to me. I'd known them maybe for, I'd known the senior people who had been reporting to me, but I didn't know all of their team. You know, are you telling me that this person on the org chart is?" opaque to you. And I'm like, well, they're not translucent. <laughs> I don't know everyone yet. And it was just, you know, just getting hammered, like constantly.
1: You had so many choices that you could have made with your life, but you really were determined to stay loyal to your team, which I think says quite a lot about a person.
2: Well, I think it was that. It was also, I mean, just to be fully transparent, I also don't think my choices... J. Crew was not on the map. No one was excited about J.Crew at the time, nor myself. I remember going to parties and people would ask me what I did and I would like kind of wince and just say I worked in fashion and then kind of brush over it. Like I wasn't proud at that time because it was just, I didn't feel good about what we were making and what we were creating and the way that we looked. So it wasn't like I had a ton of options. It was just this weird kind of (laughs) spiral. When Mickey came in, like literally day three, it was like a fucking Hail Mary. He was the most exciting, it was the most exciting time of my life because everything that I wanted, he wanted. He wanted to bring back the beauty. He wanted to bring back Italian cashmere. He wanted to bring back the beautiful wash clothes that we had made and get all, rid of all the stretch things that had been put in. He wanted to get rid of all the slick stuff. He wanted to do real quality workwear. He wanted to, to raise the quality of the catalog and the look and the feel, Every everything that I was like, oh my God, this is gonna be amazing. He wanted and so, all of that darkness really lifted very quickly.
1: Your partnership marked the end of product design being dictated by corporate strategy at J. Crew, And you ended up having to go about redesigning the entire aesthetic of the company. How do you go about doing that? Where do you start in that kind of endeavor? First of all, it doesn't happen overnight. I think
2: if you really went back and looked at the trajectory over time, it did not We were turning the Titanic and it was not fast. It was, uh, you know, it took multiple seasons to really get our footing. But I do think, you know, in terms of how, I mean, I don't know. You just dig in. It was, listen, I can say I could not have done it if I wasn't excited. I had already redesigned the line three times in the previous year and a half. And that is massive. And the team was exhausted. But when you get a group of designers, are they able to create things that they're excited about? It is, I mean, no one could stop. We were couldn't wait to get on the plane, couldn't wait to go to Hong Kong and meet with our factories, couldn't wait to go to fabric shows, couldn't... Like, we were just couldn't wait. <laughs> and that's... It's so motivating, and I think people really underestimate the power of what creative teams can do when they are excited and engaged and ignited. And I think you you said it, like, when you're designing by strategy, it is not... It's not exciting. Uh, it doesn't yield the best results. And Mickey just like literally took all of that away. He separated the design team from any of that and he said, go and do what you love and then let's talk. And then he looked at the garments and said, okay, now let's see. Well, what do we think they should be priced at? What do we, th-? it was just, we used to work into a price point and that's very hard. It was so liberating. And so I think it's hard to say how. We just, we were like
1: really gassed up. It was great. I read this about the sense of design at the time. Um, There was no Kardashian level contouring, no overt sexiness, no sense of trying too hard. Sleeves were rolled up, shirts half tucked, wide leg denim paired with leopard print heels and sequin jackets worn with army green pants. What was the inspiration for the aesthetic that you were creating? I think it was rooted in the brand
2: heritage and also just... Being a magpie. <laughs> you know, I have a deep attachment to sparkly things, still do. And, you know, the brand heritage was really this very classic clothing. But I had also grown up in California and my grandmother used to send me really preppy clothes from for Dorf Guzman because she lived here on the East Coast. So I would remember getting like a navy blue blazer and like a kilt. And I remember wearing that navy blue blazer the first day of school in eighth grade. And I think it was I don't know, maybe 92 degrees sweating bullets, but wearing that, you know, it was. I paired that with my like T-shirt from The Cure and my dolphin shorts. Like I was used to a mashup because it's just the way I grew up and all of my clothes were, I liked that mix of things. And I think everyone that I was working with, the stylists who were very, a huge part of that and the designers really loved that mashup too. And there was a sense of ease to things. We all wanted things to be a little messy. We had a similar vibe. So it was very much like, an iteration where we it was constant vibration off of other people. You know, the team, the design team, the styling team. We used to have dress up days and everyone would dress in stripes or everyone would dress in winter white or everyone would dress in camo or everyone would be dressed in khaki. And it's inspiring because when you give a constraint to a designer or a creative person, that's when they actually get crazy because then they can't yeah. think about anything else other than how they turn that one thing into something into magic. And it's like it's alchemy and it was so fun and really, really inspiring
1: you said that you felt a huge drive to make clothes that everybody could have because of how you felt ostracized by the world of beauty and fashion. Did you ever imagine that the First Lady of the United States and her children would be wearing your clothes at President Obama's inauguration? (laughs) No, not in a million years.
2: I mean, I still, I have to pinch myself and I still, like, I miss Obama's socks. I have, like, everything, everything about them. I have, like, it was such an incredibly inspiring time, not just because they were wearing our clothes, obviously, but because, like, there were a couple of really huge markers. Obviously, it was the first time our country, like, actually... Voted to put a black man in office. That's incredible. It felt so hopeful to me. It felt so exciting. And on top of that, they were so real and connected. They didn't. They did everything differently than what the past presidencies and and first ladies had done. They connected with people. You know, I think that's what was so incredible when she when Michelle Obama went on to uh, the Jay Leno show and said, "I'm wearing J Crew." that was a way of connecting with people. She was trying to say, like, I'm just like you. And she did. And I think that really resonated with people. And I think just from a brand perspective, but also from a personal perspective, it was so exciting. And then on top of that, you know, in his inaugural speech, he talked about gay marriage and that's, you know, the first time a president had publicly
1: acknowledged that it was even a thing. And that's, you know, it just felt really, really hopeful there was something about and something that's still i think really unique and special about Michelle Obama's fashion style when she was in office there was a blog that was recording every single thing that she was wearing oh, yes. and i would go to it every single Me too. day <laughs> and and then the book came out and yes. there was something so and and i'm still so dazzled by her sartorial choices and the way she combines things completely everything was so Beautifully done, and it looked so effortless. And I can't imagine that it was, but it seemed like well, it. Well, she had. I mean, I know she had some very talented people working with her. Obviously,
2: Ikram Goldman, who has a store in Chicago, who you know she was behind that, and Meredith Coop, who I think was also really helping to make sure that you know she had access to things. But again, she took choices like no one I've ever seen. What I've really loved is seeing her post presidency, because watching her. I mean, the outfits are like. To die. I love I mean the thigh-high gold boots and the I Uh, mean I just I can't I like a die every time I'm so in love.
0: Hey y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In the Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. It'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In the Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In the Making and Adobe Express for their support.
1: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. In 2008, you became executive creative director at J.Crew. In 2010, you became president of the company. And I read that the decision for you to take over as president was a two-second conversation with Mickey Drexler. Is that true? <laughs> I mean, he is very um, decisive. And I think, just to be clear,
2: and I think I want to clarify this for some people, because I, I realize that it does get confusing. I was president and executive director of J. Crew Group, which is... Which is J. Crew, Madewell, and J. Crew Factory. So it was all three of those brands, and so that was the, where it was like the scope of the project was pretty massive. And um, I think I get sort of separated and put only into one bucket. And I think it's hard to imagine like just how intense the job was, but I think it gives context. You know, I think the conversation with Mickey was only two seconds because it wasn't much to say. I mean, I think he had been gearing up to it. You can, Mickey is very transparent, and he is clear about what he likes and what he does not like. In meetings, he would reference or defer. He would include me on things that I hadn't been including before. It was becoming apparent, I think, to not just myself but other people around me that that was where things were going. So when it happened, it was... I remember walking out of the room just, you know, being sort of shell-shocked. You know, I hadn't really prepared for it. And I never expected it to happen. And then when it happened, I couldn't really like process it. It was a little overwhelming, you know, it wasn't what I had ever expected for myself nor dreamed of.
1: You helped the company triple its revenue from 690 million in 2003 to 2 billion in 2011. And in 2013, the New York Times wrote an article about you with the headline, the woman who dresses America. (laughs) The New York Post also wrote a piece, nasty, snarky piece titled, Too Big for Your Britches. How hard was it to balance how the media was measuring you and how you were measuring yourself? Oh God. I mean, I remember listening to Barack Obama actually talk about this.
2: Um, He was like, listen, I I don't read the press. I rely on my team to tell me what's important and what's happening, if there's something I should know about good or bad. And so... And I know that obviously I was nowhere near as big as him, but I think I decided not to read things um, and I stopped. And the reason was, and his perspective, and I I believe this, it's like if you believe all the good, then you have to believe all the bad. Like the fact of the matter is Mm -hmm. I am the only person, I know the truth. I know what's really going on. I got credit for things I didn't deserve credit for. I got slammed for things I probably didn't deserve to get slammed for. And so I think you have to just take the good with the bad and realize that like it's going to happen no matter how, Hard you tried, I did the best I could to be as polished with the press as possible. But I stepped in mud many times, and sometimes on my by my own doing. Sometimes just because that's what happened, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I think um, once you put your name out there, and once you
1: put yourself out there, you are susceptible, and you it just it comes with the territory. You and your then husband split up around this time, and you fell in love with a woman. What was it like to have everything you wore, everything you did, even your relationship and your then husband under such scrutiny?
2: <laughs> it's hard. I, I don't, you get in your head too much. You know, it's, it's, um it, what I think the, the thing I remember being the most challenging thing was like, you know, I would go from, and I know this sounds crazy, but like literally having an incredible weekend, being at the white house dancing with the president and the first lady and seeing stevie wonder and beyonce and like it was just you know things that i never in a million years imagine would happen to me and then you know come monday morning i'm sitting on the floor with you know someone who's you know 3 years out of college negotiating about keeping a style on the line and it was a very hard balance i did my best but i know it was it was confusing it was emotionally confusing on top of that it's not the best thing for a relationship to have such kind of imbalance where you know I didn't want to leave the house without putting on makeup I was concerned about every little thing because I felt like I was as you I was under scrutiny you know we I lived down the street from a very popular hotel and so there are paparazzi there all the time and so because I happen to live here they're not there for me but they see me and you know I would be walking my dog or getting groceries or coming back and it was just it was a lot and um I've I've embraced and really, really enjoyed uh, the past
1: couple of years of being
2: quiet and not being out there in the limelight.
1: Was it difficult to come out later in life so publicly? I didn't come out till I was 50, so I can relate oh, to yes. sort of the sudden know, change and how people view you. I know a little bit. I know about your story too. I mean...
2: Well, first of all, it wasn't my choice, and the Post outed me. Uh, I got a call. I remember distinctly being in a meeting, and I got paged over the intercom. There's an intercom at J.Crew, and uh, it was Nikki Drexler and um, Margot Fouché, who was the head of PR and marketing at the time. And all I heard was, we just got a call from the New York Post. They're running a story that you are seeing a woman. Uh, should we confirm or deny and i my heart was literally like boom boom boom, boom. I, I mean i can feel it and i was facing the wall and i just heard my voice go confirm and there was silence on the other end they didn't i don't think they knew what to say they were just like okay i think we need to talk and i was like okay and so i sat in mickey's office with the head of hr that had a pr and then we talked and decided what to do i will say um I was treated with so much like understanding and respect and acceptance, and that was really incredible because I think had that not happened, I think it would have, while it was really challenging, I think it would have been much, much harder. And I'm deeply grateful for everyone who like held me in that moment because it was really terrifying. I had not told my mother. I had not told my ex-husband. I had not told my son. I had not told my friends. I had not told my family. It was very new. It was, you know, this person had been my friend <sighs> and... I mean, we're barely in. I think we, you know, you know, it was so so new. I didn't really know what was happening, right? And uh, so, yeah, it was.
1: <laughs> it was. It, it did make it so that I didn't have to come out. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's it's not even just the the sort of switching teams. I think it's also just the letting everybody know in your life that's important to you so that they feel included in something that's happening. I had a friend that got very angry with me, then she found out that I told my cousin before I told her, right. you know? So it's like just that sense of um, people wanting to feel like they're part of what's happening and and not left out. Oh, completely. And, and having
2: their own like experience around it. You know, it was, I literally made frantic phone calls. You know, I had, this was, it was four o'clock in the afternoon when we got the call. It was going live at midnight. And, you know, and particularly at that time, anything with my name on it got picked up. So I knew it would get out there quickly. And also, I mean, the president of a big American brand, my name was attached and my name and face was attached to the company. I had recently separated from my husband. Like it was a lot, it was juicy. (laughs) I knew it was going to be interesting. Um, You know, the most bizarre experience was the looks that I got standing outside picking up my son at school. That was interesting.
1: Well, know that there were... Millions of gay women all over the world cheering for oh, you. Oh, thank you. And still thank are.
0: You. <laughs> thank you, thank <laughs> in, you.
1: In 2017, after 27 years, you decided to leave J. Crew, And I read that you actually wished you'd left a few years earlier. How come?
2: I think I had become less effective. I think that um, there were a lot of things happening within the company that I think were probably what needed to happen, but they didn't totally align with... My desires and my my motivation and my enthusiasm and I also think I had closed myself off to other opportunities, and I think that there probably would have been some other things that could have happened but i listen i hindsight is twenty twenty it happened when it happened, and it probably happened the way it needed to. I think I'd like tapped myself out <laughs> you know I think it had run its course, and it used to feel really innate, and it used to feel really like I knew exactly what I wanted and felt charged about how to get the best thing and how to push through and and then it just started to
1: shift and it was just it was harder shortly after you left j crew you and the woman that you were outed with yes. by the New York Post, also broke yeah. up. And Jenna, like, what a shitty year. I mean, could, could 2017 be uh, any worse for you? I mean, uh, listen, <laughs> I think it was
2: that. It was also, you have to remember it too. It's like, I went from having, you know, I had a full time assistant and then I had a second assistant who, who took care of everything for me. You know, I had a PR team that also fielded any kind of press calls. So there was that. I also had a full time nanny. I went, From that to nothing, I didn't need the nanny anymore because I'm home. I lose my girlfriend. I don't have anybody helping me. I don't know how to use an Excel document. Like I, my whole life just kind of, I had to take back all of my, you know, my, even my assistant was managing all of my finances with my financial team, but like really communicating with them. I hadn't exercised those muscles in so long and I just was, it was scary. You know, it was, I was Pressed. It sucked.
1: You initially imagined that your next role might be at a big fashion house, but your phone didn't ring. And the entire year after you left was even tougher than you expected. How did you manage? How did you get through it all? I mean, please understand, like,
2: I don't think I managed. I think I literally just like, it's hard to explain. I think I left the job and I want, I knew it was time to leave the job. And I, I, you know, it, it was my choice, but I I really didn't expect what happened afterwards. And then on top of that, you know, the partner thing and everything, I, I didn't do much. Like, I just put one foot in front of the other. I was really quiet. I was really, really quiet. I would sit on my couch and, like, flip through magazines and, like, look at books. But I don't know if I retained anything. It was, like, perfunct. It was strange. Like, I barely remember some of it. I think I was really depressed and I just didn't...
1: I probably didn't handle it that well. So I, don't, I wouldn't use me as a guy. Well, I think it sounds like you were trying to reacquaint yourself with yourself. I mean, I left a big company. I was president of a design company for 21 years and left. I also feel like I left several years after I should have. But a former partner of mine at another business had said, don't leave cold turkey because you're going to lose every sense of who you are. Leave slowly and let yourself re-acquaint sort of acquaint with the rest of the world. And I did that. And I think I did it for too long. And so then by the time it was just like, get the fuck out. And I also experienced it even, you know, just going from three days a week to then one day a week, just sort of reinventing the threads of your, of your being, like everything that you are, the way you understand power, the way you understand identity, the way you understand your place in things and whether you have a place or if it was your job that got you the place, it's, so, oh, yeah, I mean, I ego think, toppling <laughs> for sure. I mean, I think I—I
2: I will say I don't think that I actually started to build any of that back in any concrete way until I started to get back into the world. I think the year that I was quiet, I was—I had no sense of how I was going to fit in or what my where I stood in in the whole ecosystem of the fashion industry of in the beauty industry of the, of the business industry at large. I really. I feel really really grateful that I had time to figure it out and that I took the time to figure it out. Yeah. You know, I didn't seek out employment in the beginning because I was I was really just wanting some time off and then now in retrospect I'm really happy that I didn't and I'm sort of happy that no one called. I think I needed a reset. I needed that. And it was and it's funny cuz I think a lot of people are like, "Oh, did that feel like did it hurt your feelings or did it feel like a real ego blow?" And truthfully, like I was the one who was like, No one's gonna call, I know it. And I, I just knew in my heart that like
1: there was gonna be a big shift in my life. And I, yeah. <laughs> and it happened. Do you think that people just felt that whatever they were offering wasn't worthy of you? Or do you feel that? It was because you were associated so strongly with one brand. Like, sh- what did you, what was, why did you feel so strongly? Because I never would have predicted that.
2: I think probably a, a combination of the things you just said. I think a couple of things. People expect executives to be locked up. And while I was locked up, I wasn't locked up for that long. And certainly there was no reason to not start
1: conversations. Um, when, let me just make one, one thing clear for my listeners. When Jenna says locked up, she doesn't mean in jail, oh. she <laughs> means with a non compete. <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. Sorry. High-powered executives don't always go to jail when they leave a nope, the big company. <laughs> definitely not. Some of them definitely should. I don't think I fall into that category.
2: Um, so I think, you know, so maybe assume that I was under contract of some sort. In addition, as you mentioned, like, particularly for a fashion brand, like, I'm not going to go to like uh, Ralph Lauren or Michael Kors because those names have names on the door. And I had my name, I was almost too well-known in that way. And and who knows if they would have wanted me anyway. I'm, I'm not saying that I could have gone there. I'm just saying that the, the American companies that were available to me, there weren't a lot. And then there was the Ann Taylor and the Banana Republic and neither one of those were really the right thing. And just for sort of another version of what i just done, it didn't really feel like, so there weren't that many options in th- in that regard. And then maybe people just didn't, assume that I could do something else. I don't, I don't know, I think it was a combination of all of those things. I would have loved to have tried my hand at Ralph Lauren. That was my dream, I had told Anna Winter. I'm like, I really want, but you know, Ralph is still there and, and um, there's a team and they're amazing and
1: you know, I just, it was more of a fantasy than anything else. Well, now it seems you have several chapters unfurling simultaneously. Yes. You're the executive producer and star of the show Stylish with Jenna Lyons on HBO Max, which is so good. I'm (laughs) so invested in the people that you had been testing to hire. And I think you made the right decision. Thank you. And it's just so exciting to see what you're doing. You've started a bespoke false eyelash company, which I've also bought eyelashes from now. You're working on the design of a hotel chain and opening pop-up stores You've called your new company Lions Life After Death, L-E-D. <laughs> yes. So so is there any other backstory other than coming back to life with the name? Yeah.
2: I mean, I think it's interesting. So, I mean, there's been a little bit of a, a shift in all of that. But I think when I first started, I, I realized I was taking on quite a few projects. So, you know, I had this hotel project. Just to be clear, it's not a chain of hotels. It's a one boutique hotel in the Bahamas in Elbow Key, just to be clear. Um, okay. And... Uh, I don't want anybody to think that there's going to be more of them because then, oh, maybe then I can't do other ones. So if somebody has another one, <laughs> That's
1: true. I'm, for, okay. I'm for sale, I'm for hire.
2: Um, so when I was doing all these different projects, I realized that I had all these things coming in and I was paying people. Out of my bank account, and I sat down with my accountant. He's like, "You need to have, you need to have some sort of hub." So we, I created Lions Lad as a way for me to kind of have a hub and be able to actually pay people out of that. Um, as we things have gotten bigger, I've been looking into make a sort of a design consultancy company, which we have been calling sort of creative. So <laughs> as a sort of creative agency. And the reason is we make this joke that we're like, well, that's sort of creative. Is, is that creative or is it sort of creative? And, and the reason is because there are now all these new people in the mix and it's not just me. So I wanted to sort of remove it. So Lion's Lad is the original, and now we're going to do a sort of creative agency. Um, I have other projects brewing. I'm working on a furniture line with um, Roland Hill. So there's that. And I'm also consulting with Rockefeller Center who is working on reinvigorating Rockefeller Center and all of the retail and food and beverage and just the look and feel. Um, So that's been incredibly fun and really exciting. So yeah, there's a lot going on.
1: The television show is really wonderful. Thank you. In 2014, you played a Condé Nast editor in a three-episode arc on season three of Girls. Yes, but other than that, you had no experience in television. What has it been like learning something entirely new? I mean, harrowing.
2: <laughs> it's. Um, <laughs> I am grateful that at my age, I get to to learn a new trade like that it's pretty incredible and to be able to do it at like an executive producer level the particular challenge though is as I had never done it before I had no idea how to move the needle on things I didn't know what levers to pull I didn't know the order things needed to be done I made so many mistakes you know just in terms of the way that I thought about how it would get done and I didn't I just didn't understand you know I've learned a ton but it was probably one of the hardest and also most rewarding and fun things I've had the chance to work on being in front of the camera, not so fun, really hard. You know, I mean, the number of times I went to the bathroom with my mic on and, like, and I'm like, why am I so hot? I'm like, oh, I have a microphone on my back, and then I realize I'm sitting on the toilet. You know, or, like, having a conversation in the corner, talking to someone, you're like, wah, 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 and you realize that the camera guys, that everyone can hear you. i like, I mean, I can't. it's, like, it's very, like, invasive. They were in my home. They were in my office. They were
1: in my underwear drawer. It was, It was a lot. <laughs> You were involved in literally everything from the graphics to the music to the editing to the color. I know you experimented with 54 names before landing on Stylish. Yes, Yes. Um, This show is sort of a mix of both. I I described it before as a reality TV show, but it's really kind of a reality TV show and a documentary. And so why this hybrid approach? I mean, I think mostly because
2: I wasn't comfortable doing a reality show based on the way reality shows were being put out there at the time, and so when I originally spoke with the network, it was really important to me that I wanted it to be reality,
1: meaning it felt wanting it to feel real, and not with quotes. Well, it's it's a wonderful show. Thank I you. I loved it, and I I'm not a reality TV person. Me when neither. Roxanne realized that it was reality TV, she was so excited because. I generally don't want to watch reality TV show with her. And she's like, we can watch this together. And she loved it too. We were rooting <laughs> for the different you. people. And you were supposed to tape 10 shows, but because of COVID, the show ended up eight episodes and Correct. filmed the last one in the middle of the pandemic. So you Correct. see people with masks and social distancing, trying to do a pop-up store. How hard was that? I mean, talk about challenges. But i related the year 2020 to like business twister.
2: I felt like I was constantly trying to like put my hand on the blue dot with my right leg twisted underneath me to the green dot and my other hand. It just was really, there's nothing about the way that I'm used to working that is connected to distance and COVID. And it was just the most incredibly challenging. We shot the last episode. It was so incredibly hard, not to mention the fact that it was like 100 degrees every day we were shooting. We just happened to pick the final week of filming to be the most excruciating week of the year. And, you know, I was just, oh my God. I I still can't believe it actually happened. And And then in the middle, we were getting ready to launch a business. Like, so Love Scene was literally percolating and coming. Everything collided at once because originally the show was supposed to launch in May. Then it got pushed June, July, August, September. And then we were trying to launch this Lash business. And so Love Scene launched in September and then the show ended up launching after. It was just, and- it was a messy, messy,
1: messy. You also sold the house in the process. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh well, there's that. Yes, one of, one of the projects for the show was redoing a house my ex-girlfriend, who we had, we still owned a house together in upstate New York, and we had had a leak um, from a a, sh- a broken shower valve, um, and it had been a really slow leak, so it, we didn't realize, and it collapsed the roof and ruined the furniture and ruined the floors, and so we um, we redid the house as part of the se- of the seventh episode. <laughs> And turned around and sold it, and you know, also closed out that chapter. We've been sharing that house for the last three years, so it was really,
1: it did not, it did not lack emotional <laughs> fortitude. <laughs> there were a lot of tears when I saw the house, the original before you redid it. That I cried. I was like, uh, oh my god, the floor was, is buckled. It's really
2: hard. I know it just seems like a. A thing, And of course it is just a thing and it's obviously fixable and it's not a person, but it is amazing how much, you know, you attach homes to experiences and life experience. And it just felt so like the house was like representing the relationship in some way that it kind of fell yeah. apart and buckled. And I was like, I wasn't really upset about the house. I mean, of course it was sad to see that, but it was just like, God, I felt like the house was talking to me and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, house. <laughs> Yeah, and then to have cameras watching you, there was that too. Which yeah,
1: oh my god! I know. Will the show be coming back for a second season? I don't know. I hope so. I do too. Let us know. I will let you know. You've also launched a new eyelash business. You know, did you ever consider calling it Stylash? <laughs> Stylash. <with laughs> Stylash. That's kind of great. I love that. We should. We, could, we should call. We'll do, we'll. do an email called Stylash. I think that's great. Yes um with your friend Troy Olivier. Uh, what made you decide to do that? It's such a unique and unusual thing to do. And it's so weird, right?
2: I mean, honestly, like it was kind of another like weird happy accident. I um I don't have any eyelashes, so I'm obsessed with eyelashes. It's part of the side effect of my genetic disorder. And so I noticed them in everyone and I noticed all the women at J Crew coming into the office wearing Eyelash extensions. And these women didn't wear any makeup. They were very, very clean. So I thought it was interesting that they were getting eyelash extensions. And then on the flip side, I was watching, like, all of these YouTube videos of these women wearing, like, contour and eight shades of sh- eyeshadow and, you know, lip liner. And It was just, you know, highlighters. And they would finish themselves. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, they look... I mean, it was like a different person, but then they would finish with an eyelash. And I thought it was so interesting that two completely opposing concepts of beauty were focusing on eyelashes. And I thought, wow, maybe there's something in between. Because when I looked at the landscape, everything was pretty over the top. And I wanted them. I like them. I love the way what they do, but they were all the expressions of beauty and also the lashes themselves were pretty bold. So I wanted something that was a little different. And so I was having a conversation with my now partners from Magnet and I just, I don't know, just threw it out there. And they got excited and we got excited and here we are, we're off to the races. It happened. I mean, launching a business during COVID, like please never again in my life.
1: But the you know—the fact is for those of us like me who love having eyelash extensions, but can't because of COVID, it's a great, great solve. And then you can get addicted. Um, you have lots of different styles of lashes. The name of your company is Love Scene. Correct. And the names of the lash varieties all have four letters, Kate, Inez, Noor, Troy, Jack, Axel, Levi, Iris, Luca, and Rami. I bought Kate. Um, because I think that that's a good lash for a droopy eye like I have, droopy lashes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what do you make of the increase in the business of eyelashes? Like when when do you see that having really taken off? Because now I think it's reaching a tipping point where it's become mainstream. It is
2: amazing. I, I mean, I think, listen, I think that there has been a dramatic shift in the beauty business at large. The fashion industry as well, it's really been turned over to like the people, so to speak it's moved away from the industry pushing down and telling you what you should have and now it's the people are saying, this is what we want and the businesses are listening and I think that is pretty remarkable. It's a massive paradigm shift in in business in general and so I think as you see more people doing makeup videos and and putting lashes on, there's a clear understanding and and I think businesses are starting to understand that there's all different desires and while for the most part you had a pretty pretty singular look and feel in the beauty industry. It was, the glamour was kind of the same. If you looked at Maybelline Revlon, CoverGirl, you know, some of the, all the big ones, they didn't look that different. And so now what you're getting is, you know, you're getting Huda Beauty, who's doing total over the top glam. And then you're getting Ilia, which is doing really pared down clean. You have Glossier, which is like literally like just, you know, sort of kissing yourself with beauty but not really changing yourself. There's all different ways that people are playing and I think it's really, it's changed the way that industry has addressed things and I think it's given the biggest shifts I think are eyelashes for one and then just skin foundations. If you look at the world of foundation, it is literally a hundred million times different than it was five years ago. There are so many more options and I think that's incredible and there should be, Um, you know, and ironically... That's just what we're trying to do is eyelashes were pretty much only for people who really wanted big glam and big makeup. And what we're saying is, okay, well, what about the people that don't want big glam and big makeup? Still want the kick, but don't really want to do that full expression. You know, I don't like to wear black eyeliner all the time. I can wear the Luca or the Iris in brown and do a tiny little bit of brown shadow on my lash line, and I don't get that heavier makeup look, and I can wear them like walking my dog, which I, I normally do. I love it. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I I, I love beauty that is easy. Me too. I love the new brow craze as well. You know, so I can do my brow and I can have a lash and just throw on some lipstick and then, and that's it. Totally. And I still kind of look more put together than I would if I just sort of rolled out of bed.
2: Totally. I mean, especially in a Zoom call, like I really do think about it. Like, you know, when I put on the lash, like, and I've gotten good at it. The tool has helped tremendously. I know you said that you had a little bit of a hard time. I am sending it um, am I'm, I'm, I'm learning. <laughs> it is. Listen, I everyone does and no, no one gets it right the first time. I have now learned some tricks that have really helped, but the tool makes it much easier. And now I can get them on in like two seconds. And I'm like, damn, it really does make a difference on my calls. I'm like, oh, ooh, it huge. looks snazzy. Well, I, I understand before the pandemic, you had never heard of Zoom. <laughs> I hadn't either, actually. I had <laughs> I had never been on a Zoom call. I, I mean, it's also, like, my work is so tactile. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to the girl from The Crown Affair, their a, a brand of hair care, and I, we were texting back and forth because she had posted all these pictures of her getting ready to producing the line, and there are all these boards lined up, and it's like, oh, God, like, I... I I've never missed a board more in my entire life. Like <laughs> boards with images where you can move things around and pin it over here. Yeah. It's like
1: I don't want to pin it on the computer. I just don't want to. I want to touch it. Me too. Jen, I have two last questions for you. Um, The first, I understand Ashley Merriman, the chef at the restaurant Prune, has been cooking for you. Yes. Her wife, Gabrielle Hamilton, was a guest on the show a few months ago. What kinds of things are they making you?
2: Oh, my God. I mean, I have to say, it's like the saving grace of COVID. I have been eating... Like a, like a fucking queen. It's amazing. Um, I mean, <laughs> there's this stuff I call crack, which is basically, um, it's this roasted smoked tomatoes with onions and olive oil, and it just goes on anything. It is probably one of the single best things I've ever had in my life. She makes this merguez stew that is too... Die for, um, she makes the most incredible like white bean salad that I like absolutely. White bean salad and a white bean soup that I love. A six onion French French onion soup that is insane. Oof. Duck breast with oh, <sighs> an agrodolce. Have you? Do you know? what I didn't even know what agrodolce was. It's I don't basically, know what that is. It's it just on, sounds good. It's like onion crack. It's basically all these different onions, and then you put them in a pan with a little bit of butter and a little bit of sugar, and then they crisp. They it's insanity it goes on everything wow i could go on and on it's been the best she's incredible i'm like the i'm so
1: lucky so my last question is this, yes. um, and it's it's rather silly. I understand <laughs> that texting has saved the relationship that you have with your mother.
2: It's totally true. <laughs> I think, I mean, I hate to say this, my mom and she and she will say this, that She my mom suffers from Asperger's and she is not as, it's not as easy for her communication. She just doesn't always know how to emote and finds it troubling and challenging. And we've struggled and... Um, it's really interesting, you know, you can change the tone of a text so deeply with a heart emoji or a crazy face or, and now that she's gotten used to it and understands how to use them, a lot of things that I think would have been said before that it might have fallen flat or might have triggered me into feeling like maybe the way I, I, I interpreted it, you um, you know, with a simple heart and flower or explanation point I have completely changed. And it's really like softened our our engagement and made it easier for us to connect and connect more frequently um, and just be, I don't know, you know, sharing pictures and liking things. And I know it sounds crazy, but it's been really, really helpful.
1: You know, no one would have predicted how popular texting was going to be. Like there were no futurists saying, we're gonna all be using emojis in 15 years, 15 years ago. Um, but there's something about the efficiency of it that I think is is sort of democratized conversation in a lot of ways.
2: <laughs> you know, I'll say, oh, I miss you. I can't wait to see you in a different, like, or like with a bunch of hearts. It somehow feels different than, you know, when you're on the call of your mom, you're like, okay, bye, mom. Like, you you don't take the time, whereas there's things I'll say in text that I probably wouldn't and she took My mom made her own emoji. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what is it called? What are those things called? I An
1: avatar know. or
2: well, yeah, I guess a bitmoji? Bitmoji, yes. My mom has oh, her yeah. own bitmoji. My mom is 88. Like, my mom's got a bitmoji. She sends that thing through. I'm like, yes, mom. It's so great. So, so. I know. I'm like so proud of her. Like, go, go, It's incredible. And I think like, I don't know, that's the kind of stuff that like it really does, you know, it, it helps. It feels like she's also, she's always been really good at being on top of the whatever is now, because she was a piano teacher, so she always was around young kids, which I think is really incredible, and so has kept her kind of connected, and now she's really tried. She tries very hard, and I really appreciate it, and it's definitely, hats off, Mom. Nice work.
1: Jenna Lyons, thank you, thank you, thank you for helping to make the world a more stylish, <laughs> joyful place. Thank you.
2: And thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so impressed with your research. You had, that was an incredible interview. I really appreciate it. And it was so oh, incredible. Thank you. Nice, so nice to talk to you and meet you.
1: Stylish with Jenna Lyons is currently on HBO Max. And you can read all about her new eyelash line and buy eyelashes for yourself. Love scene at lovescene.com. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters is produced from the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's and Branding Program in New York City the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.